First Thessalonians chapter 1, start to read from verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For all we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you, for your sake, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Hakka. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Hakka, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, thank you for your great grace to us. Your great grace to us, despite how we often live towards you. Thank you that you are love. You are love in yourself, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And then you welcome us in. You welcome us into your love. And we thank you for this example of the Thessalonians, as we saw last week, their faith their hope, their love. And we pray today as we look at how their faith became famous. Would you do the same in us? Might our faith be famous also? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody worships. Everybody, whoever they are, worships. And I'm going to begin by quoting some words uh, from David Foster Wallace. Uh, he was a journalist and an author, a brilliant author, a wonderful writer, whatever he wrote about, whether it was um, tennis or lobsters or television, he could make it interesting. Uh, and he, he did the uh, commencement speech at Kenyon College uh, in 2005, and this is what he said to the students there. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some set of ethical principles, is that anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in your life, where you find the meaning of your life in, in money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual attraction and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally put you in the grave. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, feeling smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The devious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Everybody worships. Now, David Foster Wallace was an atheist, but a very perceptive atheist. The reason we're not fully aware that all of us are worshippers is because it's what everybody else is doing as well. Deeply insightful and sadly insightful. That speech was in 2005 and David Foster Wallace committed suicide in 2008. So whatever he was worshipping had eaten him alive. Everybody worships. Now in the ancient world, the world of the Thessalonians, that was far more obvious. There were temples everywhere. There were statues everywhere. There were altars everywhere. The God worship system was incorporated with the economy, with politics. Wherever you went, there were signs of worship. Uh, the Greek Empire politically had been subsumed by the Roman Empire, but religiously speaking, the Romans, they were the postmodern liberals of their day. Ah, all gods are basically the same. It's all just different names for the same thing. So, hey, you know, worship whoever you like and, um, you know, why not hedge your bets? We'll worship some of your gods, you worship some of our gods, and everyone will get along great. And so everyone was welcome to worship whoever they wanted, and so everyone got along well. Everyone, of course, except the Christians. The Christians, as he said, that there was one living and true God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who raised him from the dead to save us from the wrath to come. And that is one of the things that made them stand out so much. In a world where there were many gods, and everybody said, hey, worship whoever you want, it doesn't really matter. All gods are powerful in their own different way. The Christians said, no, there's only one God, and that is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sits in heaven, who made the world, and will judge the world. And we will worship him alone. And to say that made them very unpopular. You see, real faith, real faith then, real faith now, will not go unnoticed. True worship of the true and living God will make us stand out. Real faith will not go unnoticed. Read me again from verse 8. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Well, why 
why has their faith in God become known everywhere? Well, we saw one reason last week. Uh, Verse 6, Paul writes, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. As you may remember from last week, Paul and Silas turned up in uh, Thessalonica and they preached the gospel for quite a short time and then they were driven out by the level of persecution that they experienced. Uh, The Jewish believers in the area were jealous of their popularity and so they got a mob together, Jews and Greeks and Romans together and drove out Paul and his friends. And then they began to persecute the Thessalonians the ones who were left, who had put their trust in Christ. And presumably they thought, hey, if we give these guys a bit of trouble, then they'll stop believing in this Jesus. But they didn't. They kept their faith in Christ. They welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. But they didn't just kind of get their heads down and grin and bear it. You welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit as they are being vilified in the streets, as they are being rejected by their families, as they were being mocked by their friends, as their property was being taken away, yet they had joy. How is that possible? Well, we'll come back to how it's possible in a bit, but that's the first of the reasons why their faith had become famous. And so Paul says, when I turned up in Macedonia and Achaia, I didn't need to tell those guys about you, They'd heard about your faith already because of the way you'd welcomed it in severe suffering. But also for this reason, verse 9, they report what kind of reception you gave us. Now he doesn't mean that you were really lovely and hospitable, though no doubt you were. What Paul means is they tell how you received our message. You took our message and you believed in it. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned from idols, they turned from the worship of other things to turn to the worship of God, to serve God. And that got them noticed and that got them in trouble. What does he mean that they turned from the worship of other things to the worship of God? Well, actually in the song that we sang earlier, Two Sins have we committed? It picks up on an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. In Jeremiah chapter 2, this is how God describes the Israelites' sin, the wrong thing that they've done. He says this, Be appalled, O heavens, as if he's kind of appealing to creation to look upon. Be shocked, be utterly desolate. My people Israel have committed two evils. They have turned from me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. So God presents this image of himself as a fountain of beautiful, clear water in a dry place. And you're thirsty, and there is this beautiful, clear fountain of clean, pure water to keep you alive. And God's people have rejected that. They've rejected him, the fountain of living water, and they've turned away and they've dug out their own cisterns for water, cracked and dry systems that can hold no water, that aren't able to refresh them, to renew them, to save them in the way that God can. And God says, as if to the heavens, be appalled, look how ridiculous it is, the very thing that I am offering, 
my people have turned away to look elsewhere for it. Um, if you look in Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 18 to 22, we see it very similarly there. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged, they turned from the glory of immortal God for images, idols, made to look like created things. So people, we, all of us, turn from what God offers us, safety, security, comfort, meaning, joy, and then we turn to seek that elsewhere. Again, in the Thessalonians' day, much more obvious, because they literally worshipped in other temples. And Paul says, when I turned up, And I told you the true message, you turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. But as I say, that made them unpopular because different is always threatening. Uh, And we see this in our day more clearly in other religious cultures. So I think of a friend of mine from a Muslim background who turned to Christ and his father back in Pakistan sent a hitman over to the UK to kill him because he had converted from Christianity. I think of a friend of mine from a Jewish background who became a Christian and the first thing his parents did when they heard about it was to cut him out of their will. Because in those cultures, religion is much more closely bound up with your identity. In British culture, we've had such a sort of culture of Christian heritage But actually, if you say you've become a Christian, most people think, oh, you know, no big deal. Because most people in our country, whether they attend church or not, most people believe in some sort of a God. There are convicted, full-blooded atheists around, but they are in the minority. Most people believe in some sort of a God or higher power. And so if you say you've become a Christian, they think, okay, you just believe it slightly more than I do. You've got a slightly more specific view of who God is than I have. But if it starts to really affect our lives, then that's when people start noticing and that's when the threat comes because different is always threatening. I think my friend uh, uh, converted out of a a very sort of, um, uh, well, a very a very kind of different lifestyle, you know, family converted uh, out of, to, to Christianity from an atheist family where they were very against Christianity. And her parents would literally mock her in front of their friends. So they had a dinner party, they had their friends around. They would mock their daughter in front of their friends for not getting drunk, for not sleeping around, for being different, for believing in Christ. When we are different enough, then people notice. I don't know what it's been uh, in, in your life, whether there have been things. For me, when I first started uh, to live seriously as a Christian, it was stopping drinking too much. It was stopping going out with... Well, I kept on going out with the lads, but I wouldn't get drunk anymore. It would have been easier not to go out with the lads because when I did, when I first started not drinking like I used to, they actually got angry. I remember uh, my friend Tom um, buying me a pint. Uh, I'd had two pints and I said, no, that's enough for me tonight. And he bought me another and I said, I don't want another. And then he bought it for me anyway. And then he got angry with me for not drinking. He said, what's wrong with you? Why have you changed? Why aren't you one of us anymore? Because to be different, to stand out, is always 
uh, threatening to the world. The Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. And so the question is, have we? Have we turned from our idols? Because idols in our day, as we've said, are much subtler than bowing down to worship statues. What are the idols in our life? I remember when I was a kid, uh, we used to go to this conference um, in Canterbury. I don't know if it still runs. Um, And it was on the fringe of wackiness. Although as I tell this story, you might think it was way over the edge uh, of wackiness. Um, Do you remember Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Or as we called them in the UK, Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, because the word ninja was considered too violent to be in the name of a TV program. How the times have changed. they got it in their heads at this, at this Christian conference that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had become an idol for our children. And they'd become the children's hero when Jesus should be the children's hero. And so everyone brought in their Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and we burnt the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toys. It's the kind of thing, I forgot that this had happened in my life until they did the same thing on The Simpsons. Uh, and, and I think they burnt their crusty dolls and as Reverend Lovejoy in The Simpsons says now stand back, these are children's toys so they will burn quickly and give off harmful fumes I mean those Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toys would have given off harmful fumes now they actually had something they actually had something because almost anything can become an idol if that's what we put our meaning, our trust, our joy, our hope in but burning your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toys is a very easy way to think we've got rid of our idols. Whereas the parents, no doubt, went home to their nicely manicured gardens in which they put their identity. I have a nice tidy front garden. Uh, Worked hard, sacrificing time with their family, sacrificing time with the Lord to pay for their nice large houses, to drive their fancy cars. Spent money uh, on things that they didn't need and so had less money to give to the church or to give to charity to help out those in need. I don't know what it might be for you. I had a little revelation this last week um, on this. Uh, There's a bike I've wanted for years, this particular bike. It's been kind of getting better as the years have gone along. And I just happened to go on eBay um, late uh, on Tuesday night and I just searched this particular bike and there was one for sale. It was a couple of years old, perfect condition. The guy selling it said he'd only ridden it maybe five times. Maybe he was telling the truth, maybe he wasn't. But it looked in absolutely perfect condition. And I thought, I'll check back tomorrow and I'll I'll think about getting that. And it was a third of the full price. And normally when they're sold on eBay, they go for about twice the price he was paying. And I checked back the next day and I'd missed it and it was gone. And there was this almost physical aching, longing feeling that I'd missed out on something good, that I'd really lost, I was frustrated with myself for not jumping on it when I had the chance. And it's probably helpful that I was working on this passage this week because I just went, that was an idol. To have that much longing for something and then to have that much disappointment when I missed out on it, that's not right. Whereas how much do I mind if I don't read my Bible or pray one day? 
if I don't think about the Lord, if I fail to love you guys as I should, does that upset me as much as I was upset about missing out on that bike? What are the things for you? What are the things for you that... Well, Tim Keller has these analytical questions. What would be the thing where if you lost it, you would think life is no longer worth living? And as he points out, idols are rarely bad things. It's a nice bike. Nothing particularly wrong with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toys. It's great if you have a nice house. It's great if you have a nice car. It's great if you have the latest technological gadgetry. It's great if your garden is in perfect shape. All good things. But the danger is when those good things become the things in which we find our identity. What are the things for you which, if you lost them, you would say life is no longer worth living? Might be our health. Might be our job. Might be our families. But the only thing in which we should put our trust, our identity, is the one true and living God. But when we do, it will be dangerous. It will make us look different from those around us. Our families may react if we are more committed to the church. Our friends may react if we don't live like them anymore, if we reject the idol of popularity and we seek to please the Lord more than we seek to please people. All of us, in different ways, will have some idols in our lives. And if turning from those to serve God causes us to suffer, then why on earth would we do it? Why on earth would we do it? Well, one reason is this. Paul says, They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, I was reading this uh, with one of you earlier this week, and as we read that last verse, um, he said, oh, it's a bit threatening, isn't it? Who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, we've talked about this uh, in, in, in more detail in the past, so if uh, God's judgment, if God's wrath is a, a big question for you, then if you go on the website under the resources section and go to Habakkuk chapter 2, uh, and you can see there there's more detail on this question about how God is loving in his wrath, in his judgment. But just very quickly, because we tend to think of wrath or love, but actually even in our lives that's oversimplistic. If we love someone and then we see them hurt, that should make us angry. We should be sad, we should be angered by the injustice in the world. Or say in a situation of adultery, where a husband or wife is cheated on by their partner, it's right to be angry over that. And so God says, as we turn from him, the fountain of living waters, as we turn from him, our loving God, who loves us and delights to do good to us, and we turn away to other things and worship them instead and ignore the one who's given us all the good things that we have, well then if we say, I don't want you, God, I want these other things instead, then it is right that he says, well then you won't have me. And when the day of judgment comes, then we will be 
away from God and not with him. We'll be thinking more about that later in this book. Jesus has rescued us from the coming wrath. And here's the thing. David Foster Wallace, he said, worship anything in the world, well, that will eat you up. But if you serve some kind of spiritually thing, well, then you'll be all right. But actually, he's wrong there as well. Because every other God will eat us alive. Only Jesus, only the true and living God will satisfy us, will save us. Because serve any other God, any other God except Jesus, and the question is always, have I done enough? Have I served enough? Have I sacrificed enough? Have I been good enough? Will I be reincarnated into something better or something worse? Will I reach enlightenment? Have I done enough? On the last day, when the day of judgment comes and I'm weighed on Allah's scales of justice, will my good deeds outweigh my bad or not? But if we have turned from every other God and turned to the one living and true God and put our trust in Christ, then we know, we know that we will be with God on the last day because we trust not in our service, not in our sacrifice, not in our goodness, but we trust in the perfect service, the perfect sacrifice, and the perfect goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. And therefore, we can wait. We can wait for God's Son from heaven. We can wait even in the face of severe suffering in this life. We can wait even sacrificing by turning from the gods that in our hearts we want to serve because they promise satisfaction. And we can turn to Christ knowing that ultimately he is the fountain of living waters, the only one who will satisfy. But we need the eyes of faith to see that. We need his daily help to do that. That is how the Thessalonians welcomed the message with the joy of the Holy Spirit as they were suffering severely, as they turned from idols and as they waited, as they waited for heaven. It was a joy from the Holy Spirit that sustained them. Let's pray for that joy for ourselves. Let's pray. Now, Father God, we do thank you that actually for most of us, day to day, compared to brothers and sisters throughout history and brothers and sisters around the world, even today, even this morning, worshipping in fear of persecution, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your grace to our nation that we can worship freely here this morning without fear that most of us day to day, week to week, suffer very little persecution. But we pray that you would help us to worship you full-heartedly, that having turned from idols to serve you, you would enable us to serve you with our whole hearts. And Father, please give us that joy, that joy the Thessalonians had, that we too might wait for the Lord Jesus from heaven 
and serve you every day of our lives, not grudgingly, but joyfully, knowing that not only is Christianity the most important thing in the world, it's also the best thing in the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.